I shared this story before. Um, a couple years ago, we went to visit my wife's grandmother in uh, Minnesota. And she, at one point, busted out this giant um, binder with several hundred years of family lineage, tracing back all the way into like the 1600s into Sweden. If you look at my wife, you can see the Swedish ancestry there. But at one point, there was a picture of a relative, uh, this young boy, and uh, my wife's dad, my father-in-law, was like, oh, that's, you know, Uncle so-and-so or whatever. And she's like, just kind of nonchalantly, oh, yeah, he was adopted, and just moved on. And it was like, record scratch, like, wait, he was adopted? We didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah. When his family was coming over from Europe on the boat, his mom died, and uh, your great-great-uncle was, was on the ship and uh, just took him home. <laughs> and that happened. Adopted this baby, and they just suddenly, there's this relative in their family that they had had no idea for years and years and years that he had been adopted. And, and because she said, we just didn't talk about that stuff back then. We just didn't talk about those things. We heard another story this week of a woman who, uh, whose mom got pregnant, you know, out of wedlock in the, in the 40s or the 50s, I guess it was, and um, she never knew her dad. Was, she knew his name. That was it. But by the time Ancestry.com came around and these, these DNA tests came around, he was already passed, and she came to find out she's related to Benjamin Rush, a signer of the Declaration of Independence. But again, they just didn't talk about that stuff. Like, they, they weren't sharing information. They didn't want to talk about this shameful thing in their past. Well, today, we are going to talk about a shameful part of Israel's history. And it's all part of Jesus' lineage. It's part of his ancestry that, for some reason, Matthew decides is important to include in the family genealogy. Something that most of us would probably say, let's not mention them. Let's just black sheep that story right out the door, and we are not going to talk about that again. But Matthew sees fit to include it in his genealogy. And we haven't read through this yet in going through this series, Gospel Family Tree. We have not read through this uh, kind of clunky family tree, but I want to read it to sort of set the stage for where we're going today in talking about uh, the people we're going to be discussing from the book of Genesis. So Matthew says this. This, is, this all lands at Jesus. It says, An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. We've talked about these, right? Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezrod uh, fathered Aram, Aram fathered Amenadab, Amenadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. So he wants us to know, boom, this lands on David, like the king of Israel. And then he goes on, David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife, which is, if you know this story, this is Bathsheba. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. 
Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah, and Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. This is break number two that he wants us to know. You have King David down through the generations that would lead into the exile in Babylon. And then there's this return from Babylon that happens. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliud. Eliud fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Methan. Methan fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. Abraham, David, exile, Jesus. This is what Matthew wants us to see. But if you are a person who writes in your Bible, you might want to underline these things just to sort of draw them out. In verse 16, you have Mary, right? Mary who has this totally strange birth, should not have been pregnant, unmarried, kind of an embarrassing, shameful thing, right? Then you go back up to verse 6. You have David, Father Solomon, by Uriah's wife. This is Bathsheba. You have this potentially a foreigner in an adulterous relationship, possibly even rape. Like, we don't know what the situation is there, but this is part of the storyline. Then you have a woman mentioned, two two women mentioned in verse 5. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Ruth is a Moabitess. She's outside of the people of God and gets brought in. Rahab, who's a prostitute, works in a brothel most likely. She is brought into faith, into the family of God. And then you have Tamar in verse 3. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. There's these five women included in the people of God, included in the ancestry of Jesus. And Matthew includes them for a reason. And I want to hone in on that today because I think what we see, this story in Judah and Tamar is a shameful story, but I think it's included to show us the grace of God. That God is able to bring redemption. That he's able to work even in our wandering, in our brokenness, in our family baggage, and the junk that goes on in our lives. He's able to work even in our wandering. But it is better to walk with him intentionally. Yes, he, can, yes, he has grace. Yes, redemption can come through our brokenness. But the full life is actually found in walking with him intentionally in obedience and in honor. These five women sort of highlight God's gracious, redemptive work that he does through all of the mess, through all of the brokenness in our lives and in the people of God. <clears throat> so I want to read this story that we're getting into here with Judah and Tamar. I'm looking at the teenagers in the room here. Get ready to blush. Okay. This story is whacked, all right? That's all there is to it. It just is. It just is. This story, if you know the, the Genesis narrative, chapter 37, you have Joseph, Jacob's favorite son, dreaming about living and leading over his brothers. Joseph gets sold into slavery, sent off to Egypt. 
Chapter 38, we have Judah and Tamar. Chapter 39, we're back to Joseph, living in Egypt, in Potiphar's household. Chapter 38 makes no sense here in this narrative. It's just sandwiched here for a reason. I think to show you that Joseph is the better brother. Joseph is the faithful one who stays with his brothers, who in Potiphar's household is actually pure. Judah is shown to highlight his wickedness, his brokenness, and yet God's grace to work through his family line to get down to Jesus. It's wild. So chapter 38 of Genesis, I'm going to read this whole thing. At that time, Judah left his brothers. So they have just sold Joseph into slavery. At that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near an Adulamite named, we're just going to call him Hirah. Yeah. There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He was not supposed to marry a Canaanite woman, but he sees this Canaanite woman living with, down by his buddy Hirah. He took her as a wife and slept with her. She conceived and gave birth to a son, and he named him Ur. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and named him Onan. She gave birth to another son and named him Shelah. It was at Shazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. I don't know what happened, but the dude was bad, and God was like, enough. Like, I'm not going to allow this to go on. Then Judah said to Onan, I'll explain this. Everybody just hold tight. Then Judah said to Onan, so he's saying to his second son, sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty as her brother-in-law, and produce offspring for your brother. There was an understanding in this culture that if you're, if, if you're a woman and your husband dies and he has a brother, you're to marry him and have children by him, who then they take on the first brother's heritage. They get his inheritance. Seems weird, and it is. It is weird. But what's happening in it is provision for this woman and maybe other children that she might have. That she will have an inheritance, that she will have security, that she will have an income, like that she will be set up and be safe. And so Judah tells Onan, okay, this is your duty. It, this ends up becoming part of like Moses, the Mosaic law, that these women are supposed to be cared for in this way. But Onan, this is verse 9, gets weirder, just wait. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, meaning he wouldn't get the inheritance. He's just making his brother's line live on. He knows that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released his semen on the ground so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. You didn't think you were going to come today and hear the word semen, but here we are. I'm blushing also. All right. It's, it's all going to be okay. I promise. It's like health class. But he doesn't, he, doesn't want to have, he doesn't want to have children with this woman. He's like, no, I'm not going to do it. But he certainly takes advantage of her, dirtbag. Anyway, thank you. Let's just be honest, right? Let's just be honest with the text. What he did was evil in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Oldest son, dead. Second son, dead. Now you've got the third son. The baby of the family, he's left. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, listen. Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Sheila grows up. So he's saying, like, you are betrothed to her. When he gets old enough, you will marry him. For he thought, but this is what's going on actually in Judah's, like, conniving mind. 
he thought he might die too like his brothers. So he's trying to protect him. He thinks something's wrong with Tamar, and that's why these guys are dying. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had finished mourning, he and his friend Hurrah, uh, the Adulamite, went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. Tamar, this is the daughter-in-law, was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that though Sheila had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife, meaning, I'm not going to have children. I'm going to be left all on my own. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Told you, it gets weirder. He went over to her and said, come, let me sleep with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. What kind of crude person is this that he doesn't even see the face of this woman and is like, yeah, but I need to sleep with her. This is why this story's in here, to see how wicked Judah is. She said, what will you give me for sleeping with me? Finances were different back then. He says, I will send you a young goat from my flock, he replied. So now there's no payment being exchanged. So she's like, how do I know that you're going to care for me in this way? How do I know that you're going to give me this? But she said, only if you leave something with me until you send it. What should I give you, he asked. She answered, your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. Basically, everything that identifies you as you. Your wealth, your power, your authority. I want you to leave these with me. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. Daughter-in-law is now pregnant with father-in-law's children. She got up and left then removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. So you see that she was willingly playing a part in this. Weird. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite in order to get back the items he had left with the woman, he could not find her. He asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute beside the road at Anaim? There's been no cult prostitute here, they answered. So the Adulamite returned to Judah saying, I couldn't find her. And besides, the men of the place said there has been no cult prostitute here. Judah replied, let her keep the items for herself. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. I did what I could. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has been acting like a prostitute. Really what it says is she's been adulterous because she's pregnant. Listen to this gracious response. Bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. Tammy and I were talking earlier. Isn't that just like us, though? We don't see our own sin, we see somebody else's, and we're like, judgment, judgment, burner. As she was being brought out, she sent to her father-in-law this message. I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, examine them. Whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these? Dum, dum, dum. Judah recognized them and said, she is more right than I. She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her intimately again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread around it, announcing, this one came out first. So you have the older one, right? But then he pulled his hand back. Out came his brother. So now the younger brother is born first. And she said, what a breakout you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Perez. 
Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread tied to his hand, came out and was named Zerah. And it was Judah by Tamar who gave birth to Perez and Zerah who would lead to King David, who would lead to King Jesus. What a weird story. If you ever need proof that not all characters are in the Bible to be moral examples, here's one. But it does point to God's faithfulness, which is the point of the scriptures. Sandwiched in the midst of this Joseph narrative, Joseph the better son, we have the evil son. So I want to look at two things here. First, Judah fails himself and Tamar. Fails her miserably. And I would argue that it's his, I think what plays a part in it is his grief. His grief of losing his wife. The guilt over what happened with Joseph, who he helped sell into slavery. It says right after that time, he left. He leaves. His grief, his guilt, and his fear about losing his third son fuel his disobedience and his failures. His grief and his guilt drive him away from his brothers. How often do we do that? Our grief, our guilt, our baggage makes us want to isolate, makes us want to run away from our families, makes us want to go off and do our own thing, makes us want to go off and find Hera and hang out with him. You know what? I know I can have a good time down there. I don't have to think about this grief and this guilt. I'm going to go and be with someone else, right? And so I would just argue right from the get-go, don't run away from family. Now, hereditary family, you might need to. Seriously, like you might have to have boundaries there. I'm talking about like gospel-centered family that wants to care for you and build you up and pull you back to Jesus on a regular basis to get rid of the guilt, to deal with the pain. Don't run away from that. And he doesn't listen to sound counsel. His father had already told him, don't go and marry someone from outside of Israel. Don't marry a Canaanite. And he's like, ha I'm going to marry a Canaanite woman. I believe it's part of the family trauma that's happening here that spreads down through the generations. And through these failures, he fails to advance his own line, right? Like, like he has an opportunity here to see his family line advanced in the ways that God is calling him to. And he says, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. Out of my fear, I'm concerned for my youngest son. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to hold on to what I think is mine, which is really end up going to be restrictive. It's going to end his family line. But ultimately, the failure is to Tamar. He has an opportunity to care for this woman who's now part of his family, and he fails to do so. He was selfishly afraid of losing his third son. And in so doing, he's not able to provide for her a husband, a life, security, Like, it wasn't like she should be able to just go out and get another husband. There was a rule. There was something in place that she was supposed to be provided for, and Judah is failing to provide for her. He has no love in his heart for this woman. And what I would argue is it looks like he doesn't really have any love for anybody but himself and just having a good time. And in these failures, he's so self-protective, just wants to live in his, his own self only for me, me, me. 
And what's happening, I believe, is that he's missing out on God's gracious redemption. I know in our culture it's weird, like we, like we can't even like process this, but he's missing out on the redemptive work of God to care for this woman. He's missing out on walking in what I would argue is obedient, obedience to, to God, to listening to what God is calling him to and willingly being a part of this, this act of God, this plan of God to care for this woman. His grief, his guilt, his fear causes him to, to stumble into sin. So what if when his wife dies, he takes time to ask God, what now? What if he takes time to actually spend time with the Father and say, counsel my soul, comfort me, and instead he runs to have a good time? with his friend, and he runs to find a prostitute, runs to find an outlet for his rage, for his sadness? What if in the midst of his, his, his sadness, he'd gone to God and actually said, I'm sad, identified it and said, like, this is what I'm feeling. Help me deal with this. What if in his guilt, he went to his father and he confessed and said, this is what we did with Joseph. Let's go find him. But instead, he just tries to bury it, just tries to bury it and run away from it and goes to this far-off land where he ends up stumbling into brokenness and pain, causing more brokenness and pain. Friends, God does not call us to obedience because he's a killjoy. God doesn't call us to a way of living, an ethic, because he's a killjoy, because he wants to, us to live miserable lives. He wanted to protect these people from the brokenness. Do you see it? And he says, no, I don't want to do that. I'm going to go do my own thing. I'm going to go have a good time. And he ends up failing himself. He fails God. He fails principally Tamar. And then we see that Tamar, I would argue, saves herself. She saves Judah. Saves his family line. But I would argue that grief Fear, fuel her behavior as well, just in a different way, right? We're able to look at her story and have a little bit more sympathy, but there's this grief over the loss in her life, the fear of, of what's going to come of me, who's going to provide for me. Okay, I got to take matters into my own hand. I got to figure this out. I got I to go get a husband and I'll do anything I can to make it happen. She does. And as the story comes to fruition, the, like the, the, the plot twist moment, when she catches Judah sort of in the act, and Judah says, she's more righteous than I. It's weird, right? It's a weird story. And yet, Judah's able to declare her as being righteous. So it's sort of like you find an old quarter on the ground, and one side is really dirty, and the other one's a little bit more shiny. It's like, they're both dirty. This is like two sides of the same coin here in this story. They're both, like, this is messed up behavior. None, none of it is necessarily godly that we would look at and say, there's a moral example for my life. So when he says she's righteous, he's just saying, she's a little bit righter than me. She deserved a husband, and I didn't give it to her. I understand why she made this, this, the decisions that 
she did. And in, these, in this situation, in these efforts, she's, she's put in this unfortunate situation of trying to provide for self. Fearful, alone, unloved, desperate. Sidebar item, I think sometimes we see people make bad decisions and we judge them so quickly without understanding all of the pain that they're living in. What they're doing is not necessarily righteous, but can we understand it? (laughs) Can we have some empathy about what's happening there? So she's desperate. She takes matters into her own hands to provide for herself. And somehow, God works through it to give her not just one son to provide for her, give her two sons to provide for her. Strange blessing of God in the midst of an incredibly unrighteous, unholy moment. Gives her these two sons to provide for her and changes history. That God will use this family line to go all the way down to survive to King David, all the way down to the Christ through this unholy matrimony. Wild, wild stuff. But this is God's gracious redemption, is it not? Now, lest we jump too quick to the end of the story and say, hey, look, Jesus came from this. This had to have been incredibly awkward to live out. This had to have been incredibly difficult and weird to live out. And that's the consequence of our unholy behavior, right? Is brokenness, and then we have to walk it out. Either our own or somebody else's. Like, we have to walk out the weirdness and the pain of someone else's brokenness or unholiness. But God, but God, but God, but God, somehow does a gracious work through this family and brings redemption to the people of Israel. Look with me at Isaiah 49. Jacob is getting ready to pass away. Remember, Jacob is Judah's father, father of the 12 tribes of Israel. His name's been changed to Israel, right? He's offering these prophetic blessings over his sons. And listen to what he says when he gets to Judah. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is a young lion. So this is where that term lion of Judah comes from. Judah is a young lion. My son, you return from the kill. He crouches, he lies down like a lion or a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? Now listen to this. The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. Jacob is making this prophetic announcement over Judah in all his brokenness, sold his brother into slavery, slept with Tamar, has these weird twins that people don't even know how to talk about or how to interact with. And Jacob's like, you're going to have rulership over your brothers. Out of your line, the scepter's never going to depart. There's always going to be a man on the throne of Judah. Incredible. That Jacob, God prophetically speaks through him to say that there is going to be a kingdom that comes from Judah's line. First David and Solomon down to Jesus. This is God's gracious 
redemption, even in the worst of situations, that he can bring good from it. Friends, God is not stopped by our wandering, by our sin, by our family baggage, by the things that we've intentionally walked into, intentionally walked away from, the disobedience, the dishonoring. God's not stopped by any of it. But can I just say that it is always better to walk in obedience, to intentionally walk with God rather than intentionally disobeying, intentionally wandering off on purpose, intentionally leaving our brothers, as it were, intentionally running off to have a good time with other people. He's saying, no, 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 it is better to walk in obedience, but God in his grace brings redemption for even the most broken things. Friends, that gives me hope this morning. (laughs) That despite the junk in my background, the messed up things I've done, the messed up things I will do intentionally, unintentionally, God can still bring good out of it. This is his grace. This is his redemptive power through Christ. Does that mean we just go on sinning, Paul asks? No, he says in Romans 6. No. Christ died to lead us into freedom from sin, not the slavery to sin. He says, no, no, that's, you're dead. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. Walk with him in obedience, walking out his ethic, walking out his kingdom. There's life in that. The mind of the flesh and intentionally sinning is death. The mind of the spirit is life, he says. Walk in that. Yes, God can graciously redeem everything, and someday he will. But in the meantime, walk obediently, intentionally with Jesus. Because here's the thing. This is where we get to reside as Christians. God is the better Judah. God the Father is the better Judah, who is willing to provide, not his youngest son, his only son, to provide his only son to the bride, that is the church, that is me and you. He says, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to take that chance. I'm willing to give him up for the life of the bride. Friends, that's me and you. This is Jesus. This is the goodness of our Father, who is unafraid and unselfish. And furthermore, the Son, Jesus, is actually willing to be wed to me and you. Despite how messed up we are, despite how much we want to walk away from the Father, despite how much we reject him, despite how much we intentionally sin, disobey, dishonor, do things we shouldn't do, the son says, I'm still willing to be figuratively married to the church. You're stuck with him. And he says, and I'm stuck with you, willingly. I love you. I love you. I love you. No matter what. No matter what. And in so doing, when we are wed to Christ, as it were, when we are the bride of Christ, willingly living into this, do you know what we find? What Tamar was supposed to have found? Life, security, provision, the presence of a good, loving person who will care for us at all costs and sacrifice himself on our behalf. This is the goodness of the Son being wed to us, the church, now and forever. Friends, he is our rescuer, rescuing us out of the brokenness of our lives through his atonement, 
through his spirit indwelling in us, leading us into a life of obedience and walking out the kingdom ethic. Christ's life, his life, not our self-provision, not our stuff, not our accolades. It's Christ's provision, the husband of the church, the head of the church. It's Christ's life that overcomes your guilt, that overcomes your fear, that overcomes your disobedience. All for what? To redeem you, to purchase you back for the Father, to lead you into full life. None of it is by us. Friends, are you walking with the groom in intimacy? Are you walking with the groom, Jesus, in friendship, on mission? Or are you trying to find life elsewhere, taking matters into your own hands, saying, I've got to provide this for myself. I'm scared. I'm alone. I'm in grief. I've got to find it for myself. When Jesus stands there saying, come to me. Come to me. I've got everything you need. Come to me. He became sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. He is more right. <laughs> he is more righteous. And we appeal to him and say, I'm in him. His righteousness is mine. And somehow my unrighteousness is his. What an exchange of being wed to the true groom. Thanks be to God, the better Judah, the better father. So as I always do, I want to just ask you some questions to think about. Maybe grab onto to one of these to process this week, to sit down with, with Jesus in silence and just wrestle with this. Has God called you to obedience in an area of your life that you're resisting? Are you leaving your brothers and walking in disobedience somehow? Have you found that disobedience is brokenness yet? Because if you haven't, you will. Is there pain in your life that you are running from, trying to numb? Are you using your wealth, power, accomplishments to, to self-medicate? Or are you running to God? How are you still trying to provide for yourself rather than finding life in walking with Jesus? <laughs> for lack of a better term, prostituting yourself to the world trying to find life. Or are you daily, and I say daily, not to, to put guilt on people ever, but are you, are you intentionally regularly, daily, spending time with the groom. Imagining him looking at you, speaking truth over you, loving you despite all your brokenness. Are you spending time with the rescuer, Jesus, with the lover of your soul? Friends, this is why we do quiet time, <laughs> devotions, whatever you call it. It's not to earn anything. It's to spend time with the groom, the lover of our souls who wants to provide life for us. Friends, God is gracious. 
He's so gracious to overcome and to redeem our wandering. But life is better walking with him intentionally. Will you come to him and find life in him? Let's pray.